0: Is it on? Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr Putin.
1: I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not.
0: No, wait, it it is on?
1: Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am.
0: I don't like it.
1: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Is It On BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast. My name is Alice Workman. I'm in Australia's capital, Canberra, and joining me from not the capital, but it really thinks it is, Sydney, is Mark Stefano.
2: Hello Alice, how are you after such a long week?
0: Mark, I never thought I'd say this, <laughs> but I'm really excited to see... Donald Trump's tweets this weekend.
2: Yeah, I actually last night I had to turn on my notifications for <laughs> Trump's Twitter feed because I was like, Really? Are we gonna are we gonna are we gonna have a diplomatic incident? Are we gonna have Trump tweeting from his toilet and causing you know the next war in australia
0: yeah it's not every week that an australian prime minister causes a diplomatic incident i'm of course referring to our prime minister malcolm turnbull who uh uh, gave an off the record speech at a charity ball this week Uh, it's called the midwinter ball it's hosted by the press gallery in canberra and in that off the record speech he did an impression of u.s president donald trump and uh, footage and audio of the speech was leaked to Channel 9 and Laurie Oakes, who's Channel 9's political editor, played a bit of it on the news.
1: Ever think of Malcolm Turnbull as a comedian? Well, he tried his hand at it last night and the butt of his best jokes was none other than Donald Trump. Mr Turnbull was in full-on crawling mode when he met the US President in New York last month, but it was different when politicians and the media got together at Canberra's Midwinter Ball. The Prime Minister not only made fun of the President, he mimicked him, even on the subject of that New York meeting. It was
0: beautiful.
2: It was the most beautiful putting me at ease ever.
0: Now, if you don't know what the Midwinter Ball is, Uh, Mark, it's probably everyone's worst nightmare. (laughs) It's a charity fundraiser, which is thrown by the Press Gallery in Parliament House. Uh, Politicians auction things off to raise money, so you could bid on uh, having tea with Malcolm Turnbull, wine with the opposition leader Bill Shorten, or you could hang out with Foreign Minister Julie Bishop in Hollywood. And it's basically just a giant ballroom full of hundreds of journos, politicians, staffers, CEOs, business leaders... PR people, the heads of Australia's news organisations, they all just get drunk in a room together and listen to a pop singer perform songs. Um, now, traditionally, the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader both both given off-the-record speech. It's normally like a roast. It is very similar to the White House Correspondents' Dinner speeches, but, of course, the main difference is that those speeches are broadcast live on TV and are on the record, whereas these speeches, where they make fun of themselves and their colleagues and other politicians and the media and news events, well, they're all made off the record.
2: But, uh, yeah, and I think in this distance, one of Australia's best-known political journalists, probably the pinnacle of journalism in this country, Laurie Oakes, former guest of this podcast, he actually didn't attend the ball. So he's never been to these sort of events because he says, well, I don't want to go to an event that's off the record. So he was given the leaked audio from the speech. And there was also apparently some of the video that was posted on Instagram. And well, Laurie Oakes decided to publish it. Donald and I, we are winning and winning in the (laughs) ball.
1: We are winning so much. We are winning like we have never won before. We are winning in the polls. We
0: are. We are. Not
1: the fake polls. Not the fake polls. They're the ones we're not winning. We're winning in the real polls.
2: You know, the online polls. They are so easy. I know that. Did you know that? I kind of know that. I know that. They are so easy to win. I have this Russian guy.
1: (laughs) Believe me, it's true. It is true.
0: There's two debates happening at the moment now that this uh, footage is out in the world. It's, you know, number one, around the idea of off the record. You know, should the event be off the record? Uh, It did... Did Channel 9 break the rules of Off the Record by publishing it, even though Laurie wasn't at the event and says he doesn't agree with the rules? Um, you know, is there even such a thing as Off the Record? Some people have suggested, well, when you're Prime Minister, nothing is off the record, really. And, you know, you should with all those people that you should have expected something like that to leak. But then, of course, there's the other debate, which is, what is this going to mean? How will Donald Trump react? Is... You know, pretty unpredictable, uh, and uh, he hasn't said anything yet, but there are kind of big things happening in the US at the moment. Will this have any ramifications, or or will it be seen in the in the light that Malcolm Turnbull, you know, after the fact, is now trying to paint it in, which is that it was light-hearted uh, and, you know, an affectionate dig. Now, Mark, we were both in the room, and the speech was very funny, and there was a lot of laughter in in the room, but it also, at the time, I think people with when he was making, when he was doing the Donald Trump impression was saying, oh, geez, this is a bit
1: interesting.
2: A bit sport. Yeah, it was a bit saucy and a bit spicy. And I think that um, a lot of the journalists who heard it straight away went, whoa, that's actually quite interesting that the Australian Prime Minister who doesn't really have a great track record with Donald Trump considering that really amazing phone call that Mm. happened at the end of last year. They thought it was interesting decision. And and look, I, I think that, His staff also knew, I like knew how funny it was, and knew how uh, I guess important um, it could turn out to become if it was leaked. And I actually think that when Malcolm Turnbull came out, since it's been leaked, I think he kind of is not that upset. You know, he he's done an interview, a couple of interviews, one on radio, one on TV, and he's pretty good humoured about the whole thing. And he said, everyone complains that politicians are too serious and on script, so I think it's just good to have a bit of a laugh. And I I think that Malcolm Turnbull and his staff, when they do these speeches, they kind of expect them to be leaked when there's just so many people, because as you say, there's not just, um, I think a lot of people don't know this, but in the room are not just journalists, and in the room are not just liberal politicians, but there's like Labour politicians and Greens politicians. So Mm. the fact is, is that all of his enemies are in that room. So I kind of... I don't think that Mark Turnbull came down in the last shower. I think that he kind of expected this whole thing to actually happen.
0: Mm, yeah, well, L- Labour Party uh, staffers were saying to journalists on the night, this is going to leak, you should write it up. And the journalists in the room all said no, but... You know, Laurie X wasn't in the room. Uh, it's quite funny because Joe Hockey, who is Australia's ambassador uh, to the US, uh, he also took a similar approach to Malcolm Turnbull and has been joking about it, saying, oh, well, you know, the administration hasn't hung up on us and I haven't been hauled into the White House to be sent back to Australia, but I did see a series of black cars outside. Uh, but then he said, you know, it's not going to damage the relationship." But I mean, Donald Trump is unpredictable. So he doesn't. He, you see other way how he talks about SNL roasting him. I'd be interested to see. I am very interested to see. I should say how he reacts, or if he does react. Maybe he won't react, Mark. Maybe he
2: won't. Yeah, I think. I think that that's actually a pretty, um, a pretty, uh, conceivable situation. I think that Donald Trump in the last 24 hours has kept his head low, and I think that maybe he'll just let this one go through the keeper. Um, and maybe some people have gotten his ear and just been like that he was having a bit of fun mm. um, it, one per- one person did say that it wasn 't nearly as as bad or embarrassing to Donald Trump as the emmanuel macron french president 's handshake mm. that really did trigger trigger Trump and really get him upset, but even this is just so silly hey that like we 're in this situation now where the Australian Prime minister could put on a light hearted imitation of the u s president. And we're even discussing about how it could potentially cause serious diplomatic problems. Like, we are living in the darkest timeline. It's so strange.
0: The reaction online to it has been quite interesting, I think, because we often talk about how if only people could see what politicians are really like and that they have a sense of humour and that they're personable, people would like them more. And that's exactly what this speech does. It shows that Malcolm Turnbull is a great orator and that his his comic timing was amazing. And uh, but... You know, we we don't get to see these things because they're off the record. James Masola from Fairfax uh, did one of the funniest tweets, which is just that, uh, as an aside, I'm guessing Bill Shorten is pretty pleased no-one leaked his slightly less funny speech. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Ouch, ouch, ouch. (laughs) And yesterday we were joking that the most controversial part of the Midwinter Ball that people were going to talk about was that they served two courses of fish uh, or that Julie Bishop wore a dress that cost $32,000. But Greens leader Richard Di Natale was complaining to me at Midwinter Ball that that it was unfair that the Greens didn't get to give a speech because it's normally just whoever's in government and and the opposition. Uh, But I wonder whether he still thinks that after what's happened to Malcolm Turnbull. Um, All right, uh, this week on the show we're going to have a great chat to Labor Senator Lisa Singh from Tasmania. Um, but first up, let's just quickly run through the fast five, the top five stories uh, you need to know from Australian politics this week. Mark, what is number one?
2: Number one this week, Alice, is uh, has to be about the climate wars because there was a really dramatic three-hour coalition party room meeting earlier in the week where there were some fireworks. And all of that is about the Finkel Review, which is a report about the energy system in Australia by Chief Scientist Alan Finkel, Finkel himself releases this uh, this report last week, which says that we need a clean energy target. And as we know about climate policy in this country, it made everyone lose their minds. The energy minister is this guy called Josh Frydenberg. He spoke about the report in the party room meeting, gave a slideshow. And there were so many MPs who wanted to talk that they actually had to extend the party room meeting to go for an extra few hours into the evening. A lot of the MPs um, were complaining to their colleagues about the recommendations from Mr. Finkel. Tony Abbott made the incredible, amazing, logical leap that the clean energy target was a tax on coal. George Christensen has called already, the rogue MP from Queensland, has already called the government to invest in new coal power stations, saying that he's not going to vote for anything that is um, a CET, and one MP told Fairfax through James Masola that Uh, Malcolm Turnbull could lose his leadership over this single issue. Others, like Michelle Grattan from The Conversation, have said that it actually could be a legacy-defining issue for Malcolm Turnbull. So once again, the name of this podcast obviously comes right into play with this issue. And the question raises itself, is it actually on in the Liberal Party? So that's crazy.
0: So this was the party room meeting where Tony Abbott said to a Western Sydney MP... To go f himself,
2: and that's reported by the Australian Financial Review and sources familiar to uh, Laura Tingle. Yes, yeah,
0: so Laura Tingle says a number of sources said that he told this Western Sydney MP, MP to go f himself because he didn't agree with the with the climate debate at the moment, which is a. Uh, That's a pretty full-on party room meeting. So what's number two? So number two is the Manus class action, which was settled this week. The federal government have agreed to pay $70 million in compensation to 1,900 asylum seekers who were in detention on Manus Island between 2012 and 2016. Now, the group allege they endured physical and psychological harm, that they were falsely imprisoned, and that the government breached its duty of care by holding them in conditions that didn't meet the Australian standard. During their time on Manus, there was a... a riot that resulted in the death of one asylum seeker and a lot of other people were injured in that riot and other subsequent violence. Now. The trial against the government and Transfield, who are the company that run uh, security on Manus, was due to start this week. Um, and it was going to be one of the biggest class action immigration lawsuits that would have ever happened. Uh, but instead of going to trial, which could have taken six months and cost tens of millions of dollars, the government decided to settle. Uh, and so it's $70 million amongst 1,905 people. Um, the individual settlement amounts for each person varies based on how long they're in detention and how severe their injuries are now. Peter Dutton says that the settlement agreement is not an admission of liability from the government. It's more a fiscal decision because they didn't want to afford the cost of a trial. But interestingly, Peter Dutton has blamed the Labor Party for the immigration department becoming the most litigated government department. They have 5,800 legal matters currently underway at the moment. And their legal expenditure from 2015 to 2016 was more than $72 million. They are spending a lot of money on these lawsuits. Uh, By contrast, last year we had a report from the audit office that estimated the Australian government spent over $500,000, so over half a million dollars, holding each person in offshore detention Per year.
1: it's a lot
2: of money. And there
0: are around 870 people still in detention on Manus Island. So maybe more lawsuits to come. What's our number three?
2: Number three is citizenship changes that have been introduced to Parliament. I'll obviously make this one really quick because this story has been bubbling around for the last few months. You might remember back in uh, April, there was the hashtag Australian Values weird press conference from Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton. Basically, they're now changing, um, proposing that... To actually get Australian citizenship, you now have to wait for four years, not the one year. There are other changes that are going to be going before a vote as well. they are going to be sort of increased English reading, writing, listening, speaking tests. They're going to be changing the citizenship test to include weirdo questions that are apparently about shared values and responsibilities. And they're also gonna be requiring applicants to demonstrate their integration into the Australian community. So that's things like making sure that children have good school attendance records and things like that. So those laws came before the parliament this week. All eyes will be on Labor to see whether they vote for them. And what's number, number four? Number four
0: is an update from a bin juice I did a few weeks ago about medical cannabis. Um, so you might remember that the Greens were attempting to fast-track access to medical cannabis for people with life-threatening illnesses, but it didn't get passed through the Senate because of one nation. They voted against it. Well... It went up to the Senate uh, again the other day and this time it passed through uh, 40 to 30 votes. The Greens, Labor, One Nation, Jackie Lambie, Darren Hinch, David Leinhelm and the new Senator from South Australia, Lucy Cacciucci, all voted in favour. Liberals, Nationals, Nick Xenophon team and Corey Bernardi voted against. So what does this mean? Well, it means that it will reduce the waiting time for people um, from months. Sometimes they have to wait up to six months to get access to medicinal cannabis. It'll reduce that to just a few hours. Medical cannabis is currently the only unregistered uh, treatment that people with life-threatening illnesses can't access. And by life-threatening, I mean people who are about to die and they need pain relief or they need um, nausea treatment because they can't eat. So it's basically giving them access to a drug that's proven to help ease their pain and to maybe make them eat so they can live a few months longer. So it's, I think, a really important decision. Um, Now, you. One Nation obviously voted against it last month, but they voted for it this month. And the reason that Pauline Hanson gave is quite interesting. She said that it's the government's fault they voted against it last time because they. she said they didn't properly inform One Nation about the true intentions behind what they were doing. Now, what does this mean? Well, One Nation have been having meetings with Health Minister Greg Hunt, and they were under the impression that they could kind of horse trade which is where you vote for one thing and they help you out with something else, um, to get a deal on medical cannabis. But that obviously hasn't happened. So um, they changed their mind and they, and they voted it through this week. The government have, have claimed that the bill will open the floodgates and that dodgy weed will come into the country and flood the markets. But the experts say that that's BS. Um, you still need a prescription from your doctor and the same import regulations apply. So, yeah, what's, uh, what's number five?
2: Well, number five this week, Alice, is going to sound really boring and probably make uh, people's eyes glaze over, but it's super important because it is basically a test about how strong the government is. It's about a parliamentary commission of inquiry into the banks, which nearly passed parliament this week. So only the government has the power to call for a royal commission, and they've already rejected the idea many times for a royal commission into our big banking sector. So instead, Labor and the Greens are being cheeky, and they teamed up uh, earlier this week to try and get Parliament to pass instead and get a Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry into the banking sector, which actually will have the same or most of the same powers of the Royal Commission. But the vote for a Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry passed the Senate and then went to the lower house where they were voting on whether or not to debate the bill. The crossbench supported it, so that required just a simple majority, not an absolute majority, of the actual 76 votes in the lower house, but... The vote was tied 70-70, with Foreign Minister Julie Bishop actually missing the missing the vote, and she was locked out of Parliament. That means, in effect, a banking commission of inquiry is now much less likely to be established because the Speaker cast the the, the actual, you know, the winning vote. It can be debated as private members' business in the future, but unless two coalition MPs agree to cross the floor, the opposition and crossbench parties will be two votes short of the 76. And it all comes back on the sort of spotlight onto Nationals MP, George Christensen. I feel like we talk about this guy so much on the podcast, <laughs> who has indicated that he's prepared to cross the floor and vote for a banking commission of inquiry previously. But but earlier this week, he actually sided with the government. So it's uh, Labor and the Greens, they're trying to wedge Christensen and entice him across the floor and see if they can dislodge maybe one other Nationals MP who has spoken out against the banks. Um, all like, as always with these things, it takes some time, watch this space because I think that um, the Labour and the Greens will be trying to cause a little bit of mischief in the Parliament on this Commission of Inquiry.
0: Yeah, it's quite funny. There are some great photos of George Christensen during the vote they had in the lower house yesterday with Barnaby Joyce and other front benches sitting around him to make sure that he voted with the government. Like wedged him in. Which is quite a... Yeah, like literally were wedging him in to make sure he voted how they wanted, which is pretty funny. Um, Now, our guest this week on the podcast is Tasmanian Labor Senator Lisa Singh. Now, just a pre-warning. We recorded this interview during a very busy sitting day. Uh, it was so busy, in fact, that the senator actually had to duck out uh, and duck down to the Senate to vote a few times. So you're going to hear some bells ringing and some abrupt exits and abrupt uh, sentences. Um, but trust me, it's worth persevering to hear some of the really frank and kind of controversial things that uh, that she told us. So uh, here it is. Here's Senator Lisa Singh. Yeah.
2: Our guest this week is Senator Lisa Singh. Last week, we published a story in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn's surprising showing in the UK election about the lessons for Australian Labour. And there's been a lot of people who have been talking about Australia's Corbyn. And while many people talk about Anthony Albanese, others actually point to our guest, Senator Singh. If you don't know, uh, Senator Singh was demoted down the Senate ticket last year by Labour machine people in Tasmania to the so-called unwinnable sixth spot on the ballot. So what did she do? She went ahead and she ran an aggressive below-the-line campaign and got 20% of all the -the below-the-line votes in Tasmania. It was a big big middle finger to the party. Senator Singh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Good. Thank you so much, Mark. (laughs) Um, What was that like? like? I don't know about aggressive is is the right adjective there, but it it was certainly... um, Energetic.
2: Energetic. So you ran this campaign um, in Tasmania that brought a lot, got a lot of national attention. What was that like? You, you, You sort of campaigned on your own brand, your own personal brand.
1: Yeah, and it was not just kind of – well, it wasn't at all really my campaign. It was really the people's campaign. And it was a strange thing because it really just kind of took on a life of its own. Um, obviously, I, you know, accepted my fate. I was at the bottom of the ticket, not a place anyone really wants to be, especially if you're a, a sitting senator and a front bench senator as I was. Um, but the, the Tasmanian public just started to ring up and come in the door and say, we're not going to stand for this. What can we do? How can we help you? And then I started to realise that I needed to with them, run a campaign and it really just took off from there. I uh, had a number of volunteers, a, a lot of Labor Party members as part of that, that wanted to do their mo- their utmost to ensure I didn't lose my seat and I have them to thank in a very big way, the whole 20-odd thousand of them.
2: And what do you think about those comparisons to Jeremy Corbyn as as someone who's leading um, a leading voice of the left in the Labor Party?
1: Well, I think Jeremy has an authenticity that um, people in the UK, particularly young people, have been very attracted to. And I guess you can draw some comparisons with Jeremy to to Bernie Sanders in that sense. Um, Obviously young people were very excited about what Bernie had to say in relation to uh, education, particularly tertiary education being so expensive expensive as it's become in, in the States. But I think that authenticity is something that would be welcomed here in Australia a lot as well. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there that get really sick of the, the short kind of, you know... Three second grabs the grab. or, yeah, the news or, lines or or the stock and... standard lines that you hear one government minister say and then another government minister say and it's just like they're all robots. I think what they want to hear from their politicians is what their views are, what their beliefs are, what their values are and how they see you know, certain certain issues that are facing our country. And I know that Jeremy, it seems, has done that very effectively. Having said that, a lot of people, particularly Labor people, thought that, you know, Labor was gone for all money. And, of course, we didn't win the election in the UK, but certainly the result was incredible. And the fact that we, or Labor, the UK Labor, won seats off the Tories, um, seats that had, you know, had been in... Tory hands forever in a day, like like Kensington, for example, oh. is is incredible.
2: Authenticity is one of the things you just pointed out that Labor could learn here. Um, what else when it comes to policy, um, tertiary education, what other policies are jitting up young people in your mind?
1: Well, I think climate change is definitely one of them. And, um, you know, uh, this is something that's not just an issue for Australia, it's an issue for the whole world. But it's... It's the different ways in which governments are addressing it. If you look at in Canada, for example, at the the way Justin Trudeau has very much galvanised young people around immigration issues, even um, uh, as well as climate change. I think that that they are are issues that um, progressive um, politics needs to continue to address. Having said that, I think Labor in Australia is addressing those issues. In very difficult political circumstances uh, because you still have this government made up of a lot of very, you know, far right backbenchers who are still kind of, you know, arguing whether or not the the world is round or flat pretty much. So it's it's so frustrating to see uh, Australia being led by a government that is still debating science in that way. And, um, you know, I think the Finkel Report is obviously an example of that. But climate change, um, migration issues, education issues uh, are all really important. But also what's really important is um, us keeping pace with technological change. Now, part of that, of course, is the MBN. And again, our government's made a huge doozy of the MBN, and I don't know where are we now—behind Kazakhstan or something—in relation to our MBN speeds. I mean, these are really important issues, uh, not just for young people, but for businesses, for economic growth. If we are really going to, you know, drive forward and and talk about how we're you know, changing media laws. I mean, what's the point of changing media laws if you haven't got a fast enough um, internet speed to be able to have all of these different platforms to engage in?
2: Um, one of the issues you just spoke about, climate change, um, you've been a critic of the fact that Federal Labor actually supports the building of the Adani coal mine up in Queensland. Um, how, does, how can Labor, Federal Labor anyway, marry their crackdown on climate change and yet also... Be supporting the, the mine.
1: Well, I don't know if it's correct to say federal labor really supports the mine per se. What what our position has been is that this mine has to stand on its own merits, um, and that means obviously environmentally, economically. Now, Do you support the mine? I don't believe it does stand on its own merits environmentally or economically. Um, you know, Mr. Adani hasn't kind of put his hand in his pocket yet, and yet he's got governments at state and federal levels, you know, offering up $1 billion loans and and the like to, to allow him to, to go ahead with this. I don't think we should be starting massive big new coal mines at a time when we have increased global warming, which will not help us um, limit uh, warming by under two degrees and which affects thousands of jobs. Um, Do you need to go? is it real? Yeah.
2: yeah, go, go, go. Go now and we'll um, we'll come back. And this is the point in
0: the interview where Senator Lisa Singh had to go and vote.
2: So apologies for that, but we'll be back soon with the interview. And by back soon, right now. Um, ironically, you just had to duck out for a division about it, about the Adani mine.
1: I did, but uh, <laughs> but I'm not voting for it because I'm here talking to you. So there you are.
2: Um, so you were talking about the fact that you don't think the mine stands on its own two feet?
1: No, I don't. I don't think it stands on its own two feet, environmentally or economically. And I think when we talk about jobs, we have to consider the thousands of jobs that are employed in Queensland in the tourism industry. Um, and the Great Barrier Reef, obviously, is the main drawcard of that. So if this mine is going to damage in any way the brand of Queensland because of its effect on the Great Barrier Reef, then that is going to be bad for jobs in Queensland. And I think those jobs are really valuable, not just for Queensland, but for the whole country.
2: Um, <laughs> um, um, let's, um, let's talk about uh, well, a speech you actually gave uh, to Parliament this week. Um, you recently went to the West Bank on invitation of the Palestinian Authority. Why did you go um, to the West Bank? And what is your view on the Israel-Palestine conflict? I, I, I know that you've got quite a nuanced view on this.
1: Yeah, look, I I followed this conflict for a long time and I thought that I, I knew a fair bit about it, but I really wanted to go to the West Bank to see for myself what it is like for uh, a people to live under occupation. And in fact, this month, they've been living under 50 years of occupation. So I went with a cross-party delegation of uh, parliamentarians from both the National Party and the Labor Party and it was pretty confronting, Mark, to be honest, and I guess they say seeing is believing, but uh, of course both parties support a two-state solution, but it's just really hard to see how that's ever going to come to fruition hasn't as yet after 50 years and in in, and in a way the peace process has gone backwards in that time and I met with a lot of young people over there young people that work uh, that are studying at Bethlehem University and you know they said things like you know we've got hopes and aspirations as young young Palestinians but all our dreams end at a checkpoint you know there's over 300 checkpoints all over the West Bank uh Israeli soldiers with big guns, you know, kind of interrogating you why, you, why are you going along this road? And it's not just dividing Israelis and Palestinians, it's dividing Palestinians and Palestinians from each other. And the more and more of these settlements, these illegal um, Israeli settlers that move into the West Bank, move in there, into, into Palestinian land, the harder it is to see how a two-state solution you know, how this egg is going to be unscrambled. And it, it, was, it was distressing, um, whether it was about the, the, the huge, massive wall that segregates people, um, the, the checkpoints and, and, the, and the ongoing occupation, the aspirations of young people, um, the fact that, you know, it's difficult for them to access, access their own land but access water to obviously help build their, their own economic prosperity... All of these things were, were quite a challenge. I didn't even get to go to Gaza, so that's a whole other story. So I guess I, I take away from that that Australia has its role to play in, at the UN level, of course, but internationally to support a two-state solution to become a reality. But also I think in doing that, if we're going to say that, then we've got to recognise both states. We've got to recognise the State of Israel... And we've got to recognise the state of Palestine. And obviously, there's been a number of um, a number of um, former prime ministers, foreign ministers, such as Bob Hawke, Kevin Rudd, Gareth Evans, Bob Carr, that have all said that we should recognise the state of Palestine. But my biggest fear is that it's going to end up not being two states and that there'll only be one apartheid state where, you know, there are different rights for, for Israelis to, to Palestinians, and that would be a terrible, terrible outcome.
0: Uh, so just us again to say that Lisa's even set to go and vote again. So um, bear with us, she'll be back in a second.
2: <laughs> We've now been interrupted twice by divisions, but... Senator Singh has joined us again, so thank you so much for coming back.
1: Thanks for holding out for me, Mark. What did you just vote on? A very strange motion to do with uh, sending donkey skins to China. <laughs> the sen- Don't go the there. Senate is Don't a weird go there. Place.
2: The Senate is a weird place. You have to vote on very strange things.
1: We do. That's because we have some strange senators that put up some very strange motions.
2: One of the other big stories this week has been the fact that the government settled um, with Manus Island detainees, paying $70 million in compensation to those um, uh, people who have been detained there. What do you think about that compensation and that settlement? Um, And do you think that uh, Labor have it wrong on mandatory detention when it comes to this sort of... Does this um, issue show that um, mandatory detention should not be moved forward with?
1: Well, this has been a landmark um, class action, landmark ruling, but no amount of money is going to undo the suffering that for years now, uh, people that sought our protection uh, as a nation, sought our you know, uh, safe haven, uh, had to endure and will continue to bear those scars for probably the rest of their lives. So... This is a very dark chapter in our history and it goes to the heart of the incompetence um, of this Liberal government, particularly Minister Dutton, in being unable to settle these particular refugees, um, but also uh, to just turn a blind eye to a number of reports that have highlighted the the failures of the government's um, treatment uh, of these refugees on Manus Island. In relation to mandatory detention, I certainly don't think there should be mandatory detention for children. I understand that there does need to be those checks and balances for people that seek asylum coming to our country. I think that's that's part of international standard. But the idea that, that we mandatorily detain people for years on end should not be any government's policy um, You know, processing is one thing, but processing doesn't mean locking people up and just leaving them there on offshore islands for years on end. And, you know, in this government's case, it would have been indefinitely if it it hadn't been for uh, a number of, you know, actions by, well, by the opposition, by civil society, by the UNHCR, international community. I mean, the one thing that I found when I went to the UN last year was this was the policy issue that um, the international community see uh, Australia in a very bad light on. And here we are at a time where we're trying to get a seat on the UN Human Rights Council, and yet the government has done nothing to address the human rights of asylum seekers and refugees and the way that it treats them. So, look, I think the, the, the outcomes of this case speak for themselves... But the the damage has already been done. Um, I just hope that um, this US deal happens sooner than later and that the government reflects on what it has done or failed to do and particularly the treatment of children, uh, the awful treatment of children. I think that Save the Children and UNICEF report um, you know, went into great detail on that as did Gillian Triggs's Forgotten Children report. You know, th- what kind of developed country treats uh, ch- children refugees in this way? It's it's absolutely appalling. The abuse the abuse and suffering that children who have sought our protection have have gone through, it's it's terrible.
2: Do you think that Australia should close Manus
1: Island and Nauru though? Um I definitely th- yes, I, well I definitely don't think Manus Island is fit to be a detention centre and I think the Papua New Guinean government has ruled that it should close, so yes, for Manus Island. Um, Nauru, I think the Australian government would need to talk with the Nauruan government to see what viability there would be in keeping that facility open. I do believe that there should be a regional um, solution or at least not a solution but, you know, a, a framework Um, to to addressing the displacement of people, the movement of people, migration issues. And that could involve Nauru, it could involve other Asia-Pacific countries. But the idea that we kind of obfuscate our responsibilities to an offshore poor country like Nauru is, is, is just ridiculous.
2: So you disagree then with Labor policy when it comes to this sort of stuff because clearly Labor have made it clear that they want to make sure that they're on the same page with the Coalition when it comes to uh, the asylum seeker issue? you think that we should be closing both Manus Island and Nauru?
1: I don't think Labor is on the same page as the Coalition. Um, I actually helped um, work up, you know, rewrite our chapter in our national platform uh, in the lead-up to our national conference um, a couple of years ago now. And we have some really good... um, Policy settings in there that are different from the government's, particularly around uh, the rights of children. So, but I in the end, I, the
2: main I, policy though is still mandatory detention and offshore detention, and Labor now supports that.
1: Well, the parts that I've been very outspoken on in in my own party are turnbacks and um, the indefinite, or, or not the indefinite, but just the you know the mandatory detention offshore of those seeking asylum. I hope that we never, ever have to turn back boats. Um, And I have grave concerns about offshore detention if it looks anything like what we've seen on Manus Island and Nauru over the last four years.
2: But in in a potential Labor government in the future, you will be somebody who will be part of a government that will be turning back boats because that is something that Labor has agreed to as party policy.
1: Well, as I said... Mark, I hope that never, ever ha- has to happen. And I don't think it will have to happen if the right policy settings are put in place to do with supporting a regional framework.
2: Isn't that the problem as well, is that we're talking about authenticity earlier, we're talking about plain speaking, you clearly have been praised for speaking out on these issues in the past. When it comes to things like this, there's a lot of rage even within your own party about this issue. And people look to you to be able to say, no, we we should close Nauru, we should close Manus Island and we shouldn't turn back boats. But here you are having to defend the policy.
1: Well, no, I'm not defending it. Um, I'm hoping it never has to be enacted. Um, I think that's a little bit different from defending it. I certainly would never defend turnbacks. Um, I think people within the party and in the broader community know where I stand on the issues of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, I've constantly looked at it through a human rights framework uh, I think this government looks at it through a security framework like, you know, every asylum seeker is, is coming here to, you know, be some kind of threat to us, which is just ridiculous. Uh, you know, because of uh, activities going on elsewhere in the world, people are displaced and having to lose leave their homes and they're seeking safety, they're seeking shelter and we are a very um, wealthy nation that, that can accept them. And, that I, you know, there's so much of Labor's policy that I support in that way, the way that we want to increase our refugee intake, for example, uh, to some 25,000. I think we could even do, do better than that. So I'll constantly challenge uh, some of our policy ideas. I, I, I don't see policy, in a sense, as something that's static either. I think it can change over time and continue to be developed. And it's through voices within political parties speaking out that policies can change and develop. And I will continue to do that in this refugee policy space.
2: Is there... um, I was talking to a few of my colleagues um, yesterday about this. Do you think that there's a numbness with regards to asylum seekers and the issue with the broader Australian public? It's clear that they actually support a lot of the offshore detention policies of this current coalition government... Do you think that I mean, and and then there's like this outrage from overseas when when stories break about or a, a spotlight is put on Australia's offshore detention policies, is there um, are, have we become inoculated to actually outrage? Are, are we are we suffering from a little bit of fatigue when it comes to what's actually happening in our name in this area of of of, of policy?
1: No, I don't think we've become inoculated, but I do think it's become a bit of a. Uh, out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation. And the government has done a very good um, attempt to keep asylum seekers out of sight and out of mind. The fact that we have no oversight in the detention centres on Manus Island and Nauru means that, you know, no-one knows what's going on in there. So it's not until, you know, years later a report comes out that we actually find out some, some of the real details and because of that, people just keep going through their day-to-day lives and don't really know what, what's going on. Of course, there's always going to be a, a certain part of society that are, is going to seek out uh, what's going on in their name and all kinds of parts of society in Australia have done that. Even uh, there's a group called the Knitting Nanners, and they came to Canberra, you know, that they, they knit for, for refugee children and they, you know, for a better, better deal for refugees. But in the main, I think Australians, you know, are just being kept in the dark.
2: The podcast is called "Is It On" because it's the kind of meme that runs around this place. There's always leadership tensions in Australian politics. <laughs> so my question to you is: Is it on? No. You don't think so?
1: No, I don't.
2: In either side of politics. Oh, Like no, I is think it? It's... Is it on in, in La- Firstly, is it on in, in the Labor caucus? No. So you don't think Anthony Albanese is mounting a challenge? I don't. You you seem pretty definitive.
1: I, I, I am. I'm really definitive. Yeah. I and mean, everyone's behind Bill. Absolutely. Everyone's behind Bill and everyone's behind winning at the next election. And I really think we will. Whereas on the other side, I think it is on. I think it's been on for a very long time. Um, and, you know... Tony Tony Abbott, despite him saying he'd go away quietly, he continues to stir the pot. And the problem for Malcolm is that we all know what Malcolm really believes in and he has sold out on every one of those things, you know, whether it's climate change, marriage equality, you know, this Finkel report, I mean, it's not even that great, you know, but he can't even seem to get... The, the, the recommendations in that up through his, through his party and it, you know, continues to allow, you know, coal to be a thing. So I just think, you know, some days I feel sorry for Malcolm but other days I think what a complete sellout and where does that leave us as a nation when you've got a Prime Minister that's sold out on his values all because he's trying to keep his job rather than actually do a good job for all of us.
2: So do you think Tony Abbott come back, comes back? As prime Minister
1: well it's, you'd have to ask the coalition members that but he certainly haven't he's certainly you know lingering around to, to try and make that happen I think thank you so much Senator think I
0: Were some very honest and direct answers there from, from Lisa Singh, saying that she would never support Labor with a boat turnback policy.
2: Yeah, and I think that that's the problem with uh, the federal Labor Party. They are a big tent, and they do have dissenting voices on the left faction of the party, and a couple of years ago, when they held their national conference, it was the issue that was uh, caused most of the drama on the floor of the conference, this sort of turnback policy, and I think that Labor under Bill Shorten have prided themselves of staying unified and and actually trying to say, look, when on the issue of asylum seekers, we do have a more compassionate policy, but we're trying to make sure that we don't, um, you know, get wedged on this issue constantly at elections. So it'll be interesting going into potentially the twenty nineteen election or. There's a little scuttle, scuttle button, rumors around that there could be a 2018 election uh, about whether this asylum seekers issue is used by the coalition to hit Labour over and over again. But when they've got people like Lisa Singer in the party who are calling for uh, you know, a reversal in the turnback policy, it'll be um, an interesting thing to watch.
0: Um, now, it's time for a little bit of bin juice. Mark, is there a story that you thought didn't get enough attention this week?
2: I spoke about encryption last week, but I wanted to just push this bit a little bit further because the Attorney General, George Brandis, um, went on Sky News last Sunday and he said something in my mind that really just. Was a little bit controversial in the wake of um, uh, the terror attacks in in London and in Melbourne. The government have said that they want to actually crack down on not just encryption of messaging platforms like WhatsApp and message and iMessage, but actually the big social media companies like Facebook and Twitter as well. But Attorney General George Brandis goes on Sky News and he says um, he fully uh, expects that civil libertarians will be upset with some of the crackdowns that will, are in the pipeline, but. He said he thought that the public's attitude towards privacy was changing. Pointing to the what he called the so-called Facebook generation, I'll just read out quickly what he said. He said, I think also community attitudes, particularly among younger people, towards the concept of privacy are changing. In the Facebook generation, when people put out more and more of their own personal data out there, I think there is an entirely different attitude towards privacy among young people and that there was perhaps a generation or two ago. So mm. what George Brandis is essentially mm. saying is he thinks that young people don't care about their privacy as much, pointing to the fact that we're massive, all massive oversharers, which is a a little bit right. We are massive oversharers, but I think when it comes to actual surveillance and the government access to that data, I think that young people are perhaps even more aware or going to get more fired up um, than our previous generations. I, I know that in my life, my mum's way more unthinking about what she shares on Facebook. Um, and I think that we are the ones that are the generation that makes sure that we're in control of our security and privacy, privacy settings. And uh, I think that maybe George Brandis doesn't have it completely right on that one. And um, I think that uh, the government. Is using this sort of specter of young people oversharing on social media as a little bit of a red herring for a crackdown on social media and privacy.
0: Typical of a boomer to use the term Facebook generation, which in my opinion is is old people. Yes. Because the Facebook generation is old people. Exactly
2: right. Exactly. Millennials
0: right. are not the Facebook generation.
2: Yeah, if he said like the if he said like the Snapchat generation or the IG generation, yeah. I'd be like. Wow, George Brandis knows his platforms.
0: I don't post anything on Facebook, but I do use Snapchat. So yeah,
2: yeah, there you go. you're a, you're <laughs> a big Snapchatter, Alice. This week, what is your bin juice?
0: Okay, Mark, I want to talk to you about something that might make you a little uncomfortable, oh, no. and that is tampons.
2: Yeah, tampons. Um, <laughs> not exactly the most uh, the most palatable of topics for many people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, i want to talk I want to talk about the tampon tax, which is the goods and services tax that's on tampons. Uh, a couple of other countries have gotten rid of it, but we still have it in Australia so just to give you a bit of background under the current GST system, health products, including condoms, lubricant, sunscreen, nicotine patches, and incontinence pads, are tax free however. Feminine hygiene products, so we're talking about tampons, sanitary pads, liners, are all classed as essential, quote, luxury items, and therefore they incur the 10% GST. Now, this is because the Howard government, who brought in the GST in the year 2000, um, they held a tax committee to decide what would and wouldn't get taxed, and the tax committee um, classified a tampon as, I quote, a personal hygiene product rather than a product used to treat an illness or a disease or a disability. So it's a luxury item. Now, you might remember a few years ago, there was a petition launched by a university student that had hundreds of thousands of signatures. Joe Hockey was asked about it on Q&A. And he, he kind of said, well, it's not up to me as the federal treasurer. The states and territories are the ones that collect the GST revenue to fund their budgets. So they have to unanimously agree to scrap it. So it's never been scrapped. And the argument has always been, oh, it'll be cost too much money. They can't afford not to have this huge amount of money that they're getting from individual tampons. Well, it turns out that it's actually not that much money. Surprise. So I got my hands, surprise, surprise. So I got my hands on some modeling from the parliamentary budget office which has used Treasury forecasts and data from the ABS to show that removing the GST on tampons, the tampon tax, would cost states and territories less than $40 million a year. That is not that much money. Mm. Less than $40 million a year. So the Greens have jumped all over this modelling and they're saying that it's proof that we can afford to scrap the the tampon tax. And they say that the $40 million that states are going to lose out can be offset by a new GST that's coming in on the 1st of July. Now, people listening to this might not be aware, but from the 1st of July, products that you buy online for less than $1,000 will now incur the GST. So that new GST is going to rake in $100 million each year. So if you offset the loss of the tampon tax, so $40 million, $100 minus $40, you're still $60 million better off than you were before states and territories. It's hardly that bad, but, you know... Once again, the government have refused to do anything about it. They say they won't even take it to COAG, where a spokesperson for the Treasurer said uh, that this was brought up in 2015 and the states and territories said no. So, without their approval, it's not going to happen. Mark, it's a bloody outrage. And I love talking about the tampon tax because, we, as, as we're all very aware, male politicians run this country and it makes them very uncomfortable because it's a double standard that they uh, refuse to acknowledge. And it's, I find it, it's, it's a bloody outrage. It's frankly frustrating.
2: It actually is completely absurd when it's so, so little amount of money and it just hits women with vaginas, men yeah. with dicks. Our bloody and you condoms. know what you could do?
0: You could, you could fix this up by just putting a GST on tampons. I think that I'm, I'm happy for that outcome as well as a removal of the tax. Either way, I mean, that way they'd have more tax. Maybe they'd get, I don't know, do you reckon people buy more condoms than they'd buy tampons? Probably. So I, <laughs> I, reckon, that, I reckon that you'd get more money if you just put a GST on lubricant and condoms. But anyway, I'm not the treasurer today, so I can't make these decisions. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for the podcast this week. I want to say a big thank you to our producer, Nicholas Ray. Thanks, Nick. Lane Sainty, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. Uh, we want you guys to get involved. Get in touch with us uh, and tell us who you'd like us to chat to and um, uh, what you'd like us to be talking about. I'm at Workman Alice on Twitter. Mark is at Mark De now, you can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on. Uh, of course, subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform that you would like to leave a rating and a review. Uh, when's the next episode coming out? It is coming out next week and Gallery Whispers will be back. And, Mark, I'm going to bring a special guest to Gallery Whispers <gasps> and we're going to talk about Lord of the Rings. Oh. <laughs> it's not as random as it sounds. It'll make a lot of sense next episode. <laughs> so... uh Obviously, uh, Australian politics is a messy bitch who lives for drama, but Mark Stefano, the final question I have to ask you, is it on?
2: I've said in recent weeks no, and people have been disappointed by it, but I think it's pretty clear after the big, uh, long meeting early this week that it actually is a little bit on. And people around, this, uh, people around Parliament House are talking about the fact that if you're around in 2009, you kind of felt this same feeling of just like oh my god really Malcolm Turnbull is going to push forward with an environment policy that the coalition doesn't back (laughs) so the onness has been turned up a couple of notches
0: and who knows maybe uh, Donald Trump will be prime minister next week uh, after they invade Australia when he when he hears Malcolm Turnbull's impression of him so who knows (laughs) who can say (laughs) who can say Mark who can say (laughs) all right so we've got time for this week we will catch up with you guys next week see ya Bye. bye